So I have a confession. This isn't a historical footnote. In fact, it's the opposite of a footnote. This is as unfootnote-like as you can get. Today on Footnoting History, we're talking about big history and state formation. Footnotes come in many shapes and sizes. Some are bibliographic entries, which would make for a hilarious podcast. Imagine someone just saying, Alfred Stephen Burley, William Cecil at the Court of Elizabeth I, 2008, Yale University Press, page 204. Others expand an idea that might be tangential to the larger historical argument being made, but it's still important. In other words, it's something that the historian really, really likes, but distracts from the larger point being made. And sometimes footnotes are brief discussions of larger historical trends or methodologies. Let's go ahead and say that this is one of those footnotes, and not me talking about something ridiculously unfootnote-like. So a lot of what we do here at Footnoting History is what people in the know call microhistory. As the name implies, microhistory focuses on the smallest scale of history. We are talking about the role of individuals, sometimes humans, sometimes canine, and those stories help us understand the broader movement of history in general. Most historians in academia work on the micro, local, or regional scale. Then some particularly brilliant historian comes along and pulls all that together into a grand argument or narrative that blows everyone's minds. To be clear, I'm not that brilliant historian. I'm not even the workhorse historian toiling away on a specific region or theme. I'm a podcaster. Big history is the opposite of those studies. Big history begins with the beginning, not the beginning of civilization or the beginning of the human race. We're talking about the beginning, as in 14 billion years ago, Big Bang beginning. Big history begins with a simple premise. Human behavior is natural. Now I get that right now alarms are going off in your head. Some of you might be saying that this is a return to the Enlightenment, a claim that is in a way justified as Professor Daniel Lord Smale acknowledges in his book Deep History and the Brain. But remember that the study of history is about perspectives. And big history is just another perspective, albeit one that is rather zoomed out. Anthropologist Fred Spear has led the way in outlining some of the major themes of big history. One of the major points he brings up is the idea that increases in complexity require certain boundary conditions known as Goldilocks conditions. Goldilocks zones are essential to the development of galaxies, suns, planets, and life on those planets. The Earth was not too far from the sun, but not too close. Our sun is not too big and not too small. The Earth has the right amount of heavy metals and heavy metal bands. Nothing? Fair enough. Spear points out that animals shape their environment to create these sorts of Goldilocks zones. Think birds building a nest or humans wearing clothes. But as humanity has become more complex, certain Goldilocks conditions must exist to allow for that complexity. So we're going to define some of these Goldilocks conditions for state formation. Now, I'm not arguing that any of this is breaking new ground. In fact, I'm arguing the opposite. I believe that big history easily fits into the current paradigms of historical study. And by the way, if you disagree with me, I implore you to just light me up on our Facebook and Twitter page. So, in the vein of not breaking new ground, let's start with the definition of state as given to us by Max Weber. A state is a community that legitimately claims a monopoly of force in a defined geographic area. As pointed out by another anthropologist and a person who profoundly impacted big history, Norbert Elias, the state actually sought to expand its authority to include all aspects of life, such as social hierarchies, economic systems, and culture. 
So let's modify all of this to define the state as a community that claims legitimate authority over social hierarchies, politics, and by extension force, economics, and culture. To that end, we can identify the Qin, Han, Yuan, Ming, and Qing China, ancient Rome, Tokugawa Japan, the Ottoman Empire, Safavid Empire, Mayan Empire, Gupta Empire, Mali Empire, early modern and modern Europe as having strong states. While medieval Europe, ancient Greece, Tang, Song, and Sui China, much of Indian history and African history as having weaker or less developed states. Note that this list is by no means exhaustive, nor is it a value judgment on any society, and in fact, if you're of a certain political persuasion, a strong state is an awful thing. That slight grumbling you might be hearing are the medievalist podcasters coming to get me. They don't like it when I don't acknowledge states in the medieval period. With all that said, we should now be able to find boundary conditions for each of these categories. So, what social boundary conditions contribute to state formation? First, state formation requires a complex social hierarchy based on birth and economic power and reinforced through culture and politics. In China, Rome, and early modern Europe, this social hierarchy was largely defined by land. Europe, the Ottoman, and Safavid empires favored merchants, while typically the Chinese empires, the Yuan excluded, tended to place the merchants rather low. Most states also relied on an intellectual class drawn from the lower nobility and merchant classes as a means of running the government. This bureaucratic class did not have land, but gained social authority through the government. Here we see that there is some flexibility in the hierarchy. In Europe, the Ottoman Empire, and the Safavid Empire, merchants could rise in the social ranks. Scholars and bureaucrats could also rise. So states require a social hierarchy, but nothing too strict. Note that India, which relied on a very strict social hierarchy, often struggled to maintain a strong centralized state. The American South during the Confederacy also maintained a strict social hierarchy while minimizing the authority of the state. Similarly, resistance to Spanish rule in South America stemmed from their imposing a hierarchy that favored Iberian-born Spaniards. So we can see that social hierarchy has a profound impact on politics. The politics of state formation have similar boundaries. States require strong central governments and mechanisms for enforcement. Note that the Articles of Confederation were replaced by the stronger central government of the Constitution. The Constitutional Revolution of 16th century England saw the expanded role of the central government in both the Constitution of the United States and that Constitutional Revolution of 16th century England, this increased central authority occurred with increased representation in government. Unless we think that this is just a European thing, the Meiji Restoration of 19th century Japan ended the Tokugawa shogunate while returning more authority to the emperor as well as the samurai and middle classes of Japan. So we see a need for a strong central government, but also mechanisms for the various regions to provide input. Culturally, state formation requires a strong national identity. A strong identity helps to create what Benedict Anderson labeled an imagined community. However, when this identity excludes any alternative, states begin to drift into fascism. Weak cultural identities tend to lead to factionalism and dysfunctional states, exacerbating already existing political and social issues. Finally, state formation requires a strong economy, one capable of sustaining modern taxation to support army and other bureaucratic institutions. At the same time, the economic power cannot be so concentrated that it prevents the formation of strong political institutions. Merchants typically resist state formation since the state typically wants to tax them to pay for that army. So we have some boundary conditions. But, careful listener that you are, and let's be honest, you're a careful listener. You will have no doubt noticed that so far, we really haven't discussed anything new. A lot of this is just careful repackaging of already established theories about state formation. So where does big history come in? Earlier I talked about increasing complexity, 
And you might ask yourself, careful listener, why do civilizations become more complex? Isn't simpler better? Easier to run? Everything's local. A place where everybody knows your name. And the short answer is no. More complex systems are able to more efficiently use and produce energy. Think of the sun for a second. Compared to the human body, the sun is incredibly simple. We're talking about massive amounts of hydrogen pulled together by gravitational forces so strong that they create helium and energy. That's just hydrogen and gravity. Compare that with the plethora of chemical processes going on in your body right now, and it's not much of a comparison. This is not to say that the sun doesn't put out massive amounts of energy, but the human body is simply more efficient. In the same way, states, being more complex, are better at the consumption and production of energy than other forms of civilizations. Energy, in this case, is best viewed in terms of raw materials. States that could produce energy more efficiently were able to spend more energy on other things such as economic, cultural, or military development. These improvements create a feedback loop that allowed for states to grow in both size and ability to create energy. But there is a downside to all this complexity. As complexity increases, the boundary conditions become narrower. Think of our friend the sun again. Once created, stars are pretty reliable. So as states become more complex, more energy is spent on making sure that it stays within those narrowing boundary conditions. This also means that states won't last as long as their earlier counterparts. States have a tendency to rise and fall and are fairly short-lived. To put this in perspective, anatomically modern humans have been around for about 200,000 years. States, depending on your definition, have been around off and on for the last 2,000 or so. In that time, the United States has been around for about 230 without a major constitutional revolution. Although many historians point to the Civil War and the Great Depression as marking major shifts in the role of government in the United States and may be considered revolutionary in practice, if not in law. The modern incarnation of England can be traced to the 1801 Act of Union. And these are two of the more stable states. This means that states have been around for about 1% of human existence and the United States for about 0.115% of human existence. Politicians are fond of claiming that the United States is a great experiment in democracy. But in reality, states in general are still in that experimental stage. Beyond all of this, big history helps us to understand that the factors that have made the United States more or less stable are not due to any exceptional status, but instead tied to factors common to all states. The longevity can be explained as the ability of the United States to use its resources or energy to effectively remain within its boundary conditions. As Jared Diamond has famously noted in Guns, Germs, and Steel, environment and geography shapes ideology and creates successful civilizations. Put in terms of big history, geography and environment are also boundary conditions. The less energy that goes into finding the environment, the more that can go into running a successful civilization. Big history isn't like other subjects. No one is ever going to be an expert at big history. It's too, well, that's big. It touches on everything from astrophysics to biology to chemistry to geology and, of course, history. Instead, big history is just a way of looking at the world, a way of putting things as seemingly different as the formation of galaxies and the formation of states in the same frame of reference. It's also not really a field of study. It's more like a field of discussion with contributions being made from a wide variety of viewpoints. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote.
Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>